at the moment, I'm in what might be described as a between-season lull. The cricket's been done for weeks now, uh, but the footy season is just around the corner. It hasn't been a great time to be a follower of Brisbane sports teams. In the cricket, the Brisbane Heat were atrocious, and in the footy, the Broncos have had the worst seasons they've had in the team's history. So let me take you back. Back to 2006, a time when John Howard was the Prime Minister, a time when I had a full head of hair. This was the time of the Broncos' last Premiership win. And it was largely because of the efforts of this man, Shane Webke. Without a doubt, Shane Webke was one of the NRL's hardest men. He was a leader of the Ford pack. When there was a tough run, he'd take it straight on, straight into the opposition. And at the time, no opposition was feared more than the Melbourne Storm, the most successful club of the modern era. Shane Webke took the hard runs in that grand final and helped set up a game-sealing field goal. The Broncos were victorious, but it was the last time that Shane Webke would pull on a Broncos jersey as he had just announced his retirement. That was the last time the Broncos won the Premiership. Unfortunately, since then, the players who have tried to take Webke's place haven't been able to follow in his footsteps. They haven't worked as hard, and so the opposition have overpowered them and run through them. And the Broncos have crumbled under pressure. Today, we're looking at a passage where Jesus was no longer around to lead the new church that he had started. John and Peter have been thrown the ball and are now facing the opposition. How do they respond? Will they crumble or rise to the challenge? Last week, we heard that Peter and John had gone to the temple to pray. Peter healed a man that was crippled since birth. Peter then spoke to the crowd at the temple and declared the man's healing as an act of God made possible by faith in Jesus Christ. There, he preached a message of repentance and belief in Jesus to wipe out the sins of man. Peter explained how this ties in with the Old Testament prophets and the promises God made to Abraham. And it is at this point that Peter and John are confronted by an old enemy. Please keep your Bibles open to Acts 4, and I'm going to start reading from verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So we have the priests, the temple guard and the Sadducees. None of them liked the fact that Peter was preaching to the people. In particular, the Sadducees would have really found Peter's teaching offensive as they didn't believe in an afterlife at all. They all wanted this new movement stopped, but there was one problem. The Jewish courts wouldn't meet again until the next morning. This is why in verse 3 we read, They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put them in jail until the next day. But it's not all bad news because we hear in verse 4 that God is already at work through Peter's words. We read, But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So there are now around 5,000 men following Christ and his apostles. Factoring in women and children, that means there were probably a lot more than 10,000 believers at this stage. 
from 120 believers to well over 10,000 in a matter of days. I think for us that's hard to swallow. It's somewhat unbelievable, but the Spirit is at work. This movement is huge and the Jewish leaders are worried. How will Peter and John be stopped? Well, the big guns are about to be brought out. Let's have a look at verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Morning comes, and we are told that the elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Now, this is what is referred to in verse 15 as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a very powerful group of people overseen by the high priest. It was, in essence, a mixture between the high court and the parliament. So we now have Peter and John, two fishermen come apostles, and they've been brought before what would be our version of a federal court and parliament, comprised of 70 of the most powerful people in the land. Peter and John knew full well not only who they were, but that these people were responsible for the death of their friend and leader, Jesus. Now the opposition is pushing back. By what power or what name did you do this? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are now being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It's Peter's run. He's been past the ball, and boy does he run hard at the opposition, though it seems as though it isn't his own, fully his own doing. We see here that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a phrase that we've already heard back in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. But it begs the question, how can you be filled and filled and filled again? Is there a leak somewhere? Do we need a top-up every now and then? Didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? Well, what is clear is that Peter is not being fully Peter at this time. At this point in the Bible, we might even say that for Peter, the first few chapters of Acts are his high point. Because about two months before this, Peter was denying that he even knew Jesus. He couldn't admit that he even knew Jesus. And his first denial was when he was confronted by a servant girl. Now here, he stands in front of over 70 of the most powerful men in Israel, and he gives them a serve. We see here a clear indication that Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter's inhibitions, his limitations, his worries are nowhere to be seen. The Holy Spirit, who has been in Peter since the time he first believed, is now fully manifesting once again. The Spirit takes the rein, and his will and Peter's will are totally in sync. He is filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that the Spirit leaves us and comes back every now and then. 
It certainly doesn't mean that we are especially righteous. The Holy Spirit fills people and uses them at specific times to bring about his will and purpose. It's a direct fulfillment of what Jesus says in Luke 12, chapter uh, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is exactly what we see here. So Peter, filled with the Spirit, charges head first into his opponents. He answers their questions and then gives them a bit extra as well. First, he gives them a little bit of a clapback. In verse 9, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, Peter is saying, are you seriously accusing us for healing a man who is lame? Well, seeing you ask, it was Jesus of Nazareth. And then Peter flips the accusation on its head. In previous sermons, he's charged the people with the death of Jesus. But this time, the accusation is a lot more pointed and has a lot more weight. You crucified him. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And Peter then brings to life the passage from Psalm 118. The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The image here is clear. These leaders of Israel, they were in charge of leading God's people faithfully, of building God's people, his church. They were supposed to be God's builders. And yet when these builders came across the stone that would become the basis, the cornerstone from which all the church needed to be built upon, they saw Jesus as unfit. They didn't even see it as part of God's plan. They utterly rejected him. And they didn't just toss him aside, they tried to destroy him. Only to be thwarted by God himself in raising Jesus from the dead. This is the God that they professed to serve. Peter finishes off his accusation with a revolutionary proclamation. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. for There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Hey, this Jesus you tried to destroy is the Messiah, the Saviour, and not just of Israel like we thought, but of mankind, of the world, for there is no other name under heaven. Peter's grabbed the ball and run through the opposition without one hand being laid on him, and the opposition has been left in tatters. Verse 13, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Can you imagine what the the members of the Sanhedrin were thinking? Come on, we just got rid of that no good blasphemer Jesus and now we've got his cronies to deal with. And not only did they have to contend with Jesus' followers, Peter spoke so courageously in the face of his Lord's enemies. And this astonished them because they realised that these men were unschooled. 
These fishermen were essentially nothing in the religious world, and so the Sadducees and Pharisees wouldn't have usually worried about them. But the courage and conviction that Peter and John spoke with astounded them. How can these men speak so powerfully? Well, of course, we know that it is one, they were disciples and students of Jesus, and two, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Sanhedrin send them away and they're very clearly stuck. They have no idea what to do. And to further their problem, the message is spread. We read that everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. They can't just sweep this under the rug, but they need to stop this new message of hope from spreading. Why? Because then they're out of a job. Then they lose their influence with the people and they lose their power. They aren't concerned with what is true in the slightest. They just want it to stop. So from verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So they call on the disciples and command them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. We have here two groups of people who believe that they have the truth. I think how Peter and John react, as opposed to how the Sanhedrin react, typify the two choices that we as Christians could make when we are confronted. When the heat is applied, when you are commanded not to, uh, by the authorities, not to preach in Jesus' name, what do you do? Well, Peter and John, they appeal to the highest authority, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. Peter and John, convicted by the truth and by God himself, say they can't help but speak about what they have been witnesses to. Despite the commands, Despite the threats of punishment, despite potentially dying, they will speak the truth. The Sanhedrin, on the other hand, don't care enough about the truth. They are worried about a revolt. They're worried about looking bad. They must think their position is true, mustn't they? If they really cared about the truth and they thought that they were right, they would have sought justice. They would have been able to discipline the disciples and justify it to the naysayers. Regardless of how the people reacted, if the Sanhedrin thought that they had the truth and were convicted by it, they would have acted on it and accepted the consequences, just as the disciples did. But they didn't care about the truth enough. They cared more about what they looked like to the people. Who do you more closely identify with? Would you speak the truth of Jesus? even when commanded to, not by the authorities? Or would you flake away, just appeal to the crowds? This is convicting stuff. If you're like me, this is convicting because you care about the truth and you care about people too. But sometimes, or maybe more often than we'd like, we care about our relationships or our reputation more. If you aren't convicted by this, You're either a Jesus-level evangelist taking every opportunity every day or you don't care about the truth at all. 
Jesus said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't care about the truth, then what do you actually believe in? I hope you're wrestling with this as I've been for the last couple of weeks. This won't be news to you that this is something that many, many Christians struggle with. But really, we need to lift our game. Often when the rubber reaches the road, when the blowtorch gets applied, when we are past the ball, we stumble, we fall, we fail. We fear the ramifications of what we might say, of how someone might react, the fear of persecution of our friends and family. But if we're real about it, the persecution we fear is embarrassment, shame. We aren't in Peter and John's position, confronted by authorities who have the power to take life. We aren't in the position of Christians in China, North Korea, Somalia. We're scared of the potential of Western persecution, which is essentially to say we are ashamed. And then we read in Luke 9, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. However, our God is a patient, loving and forgiving God. And in the last part of our passage today, we are shown some ways to tackle this issue we Christians experience all too often. Verse 23, on their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. After the threats, Peter and John are released and they return to let the other believers know what had happened. Now, I want you to suppose that sometime in the future, our elders, Daniel and Tom, have been taken away by the police for the sake of the gospel. They return after a length of time and they tell us about everything that had happened. I wonder how we would react. Would we be more likely to go underground and withdraw from society? Or would we do what the disciples did here? Would our first response be to lift up our voices and together to pray to God? And if we did pray, would we be more likely to pray for protection rather than boldness? The disciples don't pray for protection, and there is a perfectly sound reason as to why this is. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and with the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They begin their prayer with the salutation, Sovereign Lord. In our world, sovereignty is most commonly ascribed to the Queen or those sorts of characters. And this is because it's supposed to mean supreme or highest power. But the sovereignty of the Queen pales in comparison to the sovereignty of God. Indeed, this address of Sovereign Lord prefaces the whole prayer. 
we see that God is sovereign because, firstly, he made everything. And secondly, despite nations of people and the most powerful rulers rising up against God, including putting Jesus to death on a cross, God has foreknowledge of all these plans and uses them to fulfill his purposes. Even though God's enemies try to plan to push back against him and to ruin his plans, instead they help his plans come to fruition. And so they pray for boldness. They pray for boldness because despite the leaders once again rising up, they have faith in God. God's got this. Whatever happens, God's plan is going to work out. So there is no need for hiding and no need for worry. And we see in the very next verse that God is faithful. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Immediately after they pray, the place was shaken. This isn't the same word that we see used for earthquakes. And it isn't clear, but I wonder if the rushing wind from Pentecost returns with such force that it shakes the building that they are in. Regardless, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit and speak the word boldly. They experience the same as what Peter did back in verse 8, an alignment of their will and the Holy Spirit's to the point where they speak with a supernatural boldness. And so now, with the Holy Spirit's help, they proclaim the good news of the risen Jesus with a confidence and strength that they didn't have before. Sometimes I think we can be guilty of talking ourselves down. When a passage like this crops up, we think, but that was a special time and place. We're past that. Or, yeah, but that's the Apostle Peter. He had a special calling. So, are Peter and John special? Well, yes, God used them for a, for a time in his, in his purposes. But when we look at the scriptures, we realize, no, this is the same Peter who denied Christ three times. This is the same John who tried to get a secret deal with his brother to sit at Jesus' side in heaven. Peter and John are typical, everyday, sinful people. It is our human nature to flee when faced with opposition. So, what is the difference between their moments of weakness and of their strength? It's the Holy Spirit. He is the difference between meekness and boldness for the gospel, and he dwells in us now. Like I said earlier, it is when our will aligns with God's, when we seek purely his glory and exaltation, that is when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is when, despite our worldly concerns, we are emboldened to fulfill God's purpose. But the believers highlight something else that can embolden us, and that is God's sovereignty. We can rest in God's sovereignty because we know that he is in control. We know, as we read earlier, that God uses everything, good and bad, to grow his kingdom. And when we really grasp a hold of this, we can know that in spite of what we know is evil, his will will be done. So we see that when we rest in God's security the security of God's sovereignty, and seek God's will, the power of the Holy Spirit fills us. And that is when big things happen. Not just back then, but today. In 
2 Timothy, verses 7 and 8, we read, The Spirit of God gave us, uh, the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The ball has now been passed to you. From what we've seen today, the only way we'll get through the opposition is to know that what will happen will be used by God. And that, like Peter did, we can leave the opposition clutching at thin air, but only through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would constantly work on us to align our will with yours, that we would seek for you to be glorified. We pray that you would use us to fulfill your purposes and that your Holy Spirit would embolden us to speak the good news of the risen Jesus and that ultimately you would use us to grow your kingdom no matter the opposition we face. In Jesus' name and for his kingdom's sake we pray. Amen.